you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. Welcome to another exciting episode of Treasury Cast, the show devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And joining us for this episode, because of course, who else would it be when we're talking about Superman? Michael Bailey. Hello, Mike. Welcome to Treasury Cast. Thank you for having me. This is one of my favorite new shows. And uh, it's really exciting to be part of something, especially talking about, you know, my favorite character, but also talking about this specific story where you can kind of delve into the minutcia of pre-crisis Superman. So I appreciate that. Yes, this is a deep dive into the craziness of Silver Age, Bronze Age Superman. That's one of the definite appeals to this book. Uh, This book in question is Superman and his incredible Fortress of Solitude. Uh, it is actually known as DC Special Series number 26. That is the omnibus title that DC had. And I love the DC Special Series because DC just used it for everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, DC Special Series was a regular-sized comic. It was like an 80-page giant comic. It was a digest comic. And it was a treasury comic. So whenever DC had a book to print out and they didn't want to start over at a number one because of those damn uh, postal regulations, they were just like, ah, let's just call it DC Special Series. That's fine. Uh, that's good enough. Somebody at the office obviously looked at the crystal ball of people wanting to actually store their comics and said, ha ha, F you. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. You put all these on a shelf, you bunch of nerds, you know, going to have a digest next to a treasury next to the the Swamp Thing, you know, 80 page book. It's all it's all over the place. DC special series. But yeah, this comic is it's it's. Superman basically takes us on a tour of, as the title suggests, his incredible Fortress of Solitude. The original title was his amazing Fortress of Solitude. Uh, For some reason, they felt incredible, I guess, worked better when the time came to actually publish this book. Uh, It was first released on June 18th, 1981. It was a summer comic. I can't imagine. Boy, how fun would, would it be to have seen this on the newsstand in the middle of summer? You're out of school, and there's this giant Superman comic. Like, that's just, like, the perfect summer comic book release. Well, you know what the next day was? What was the next day? Well, outside of the day my wife was born, it was also the day that Superman 2 hit American theaters. Oh, wow. Oh, well, that perfect timing then. No wonder they put it out then. It's yeah. That, that, when you said that date, and I had read it before, but it didn't click for some reason. But, yeah, because Superman 2 was actually released internationally in 1980. But I don't think anybody at Warner Brothers wanted to deal with Star Wars, uh, you know, Empire Strikes Back coming out that summer. So they and they kind of like kept it really quiet that they had released it internationally because they were afraid that if it bombed, that those reviews would reach the United States Hmm. and that would tank the movie. But it turned out not to be the case. But, yeah, that was uh, I mean, it would be awesome to leave the theater as a little kid 
all hyped up on, you know, Jujubes and, and Superman, you know, throwing Kryptonians around. And then you see this thing on the newsstand. I, I can't oh, even imagine yeah, that. That is the summer of Superman. That is terrific. Yeah, this is great. The cover uh, is by Ross Andrew and I believe Dick Giordano. And it's, it's, uh, the cover is surprisingly kind of non-action oriented. It's just Superman entering the door. But I almost feels a little meta to me. It's like he's inviting the reader. Come with me into my incredible fortress of solitude. I almost want to get a, like, Photoshop pizzas. Yeah, he does look like, like he's carrying pizzas, yes. <laughs> no, it's a great cover. I would definitely say Giordano, excuse me, I can't speak right now, uh, mainly because of how Superman's muscular, you know, and the tone and everything on him. That I mean, it, it, it's obviously Ross Andrews' design, but yeah, there's a little there's a little uh, Giordano in there, I would yeah. I would imagine. Yeah, it's really, it's really, really nice. I love the logo. Was Fortress of Solitude is in huge type. Uh, it's really, a, really a, a nice, nice cover. And the back cover is Superman. You need to get to see all the stuff on the inside. And the story in question is called Fortress of Fear. It's by Roy Thomas, drawn by Ross Andrew and inkered Romeo Tango. The letter is Gaspar Saladino, and the colors is Jerry Serpe. Now, I like sort of forgot that Roy Thomas wrote this. And when I dug the comic out again in anticipation of doing this episode, I was like, Roy Thomas wrote this? Like, he really? Like, that, just, that name just is not a name you think of when you think of Superman, for the most part. And so I actually reached out to Roy, and I wanted to ask him about this. Like, how did this come about? Because he's just not typically someone you think of when you're writing Superman. And this is what he said. He said, I was assigned by an editor very soon after I went to work for DC to do that treasure simply because it was something they wanted me to do while I was developing new titles, uh, All-Star Squadron and Iraq Son of Thunder. I wasn't eager to write Superman or Batman because I like to write series where I'm virtually the only writer and I don't have to clear things. But this one shot mostly dealt with pulling together and reprising events of the past, so that was fine by me. I believe they sent me copies of pretty much all the material I needed. I certainly didn't have or know all of that stuff, but I did my homework and enjoyed both working on it and the end product because it was penciled by Ross Andrew, a much underrated artist with whom I previously worked on X-Men, Call, etc. So that's sort of funny to me that really that like DC wanted to have a treasury out and like you're mentioning of Superman too. That's clearly what it was for. You know, mm-hmm. like, Hey, Superman's got a movie out. Let's put a treasury out, which is something I've been talking about on this show. Every episode is that they should be doing movie <laughs> tie-ins with these treasuries. So here was DC doing that. And I guess they just gave it to Roy to do. So, uh, you know, and he did a great job. This is a really fun story. So the inside cover features a little history by E. Nielsen Bridwell about Superman's Fortress of Solitude. And then we get right into the story. So, Mike, why don't you take it away? Well, rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El came to Earth, whose environment gave him fantastic powers. In Metropolis, he poses as Clark Kent, but battles evil the world over as Superman. And I just had to read that. I just, you know, just, I love that saga cell. <laughs> we open on Superman flying into space to confront a meteor that is now on a collision course with the Earth, thanks to a villain named Dominus crashes into the meteor, and the resulting impact allows him, for some reason, to see an hour into the future. The future is grim, as the Man of Steel witnesses the destruction of the Earth. After a short scene where Dominus and Ned Beatty talk about how Dominus set into motion the plan that will not only destroy the Earth, but also force the Man of Steel to suffer and fail. 
Meanwhile, at the Fortress of Solitude, Superman thinks how he had a fortress in space at one point, and that ended badly. He eventually carved out his current fortress and devised a key made of metal that he stuck in the middle of Metropolis just to see if anyone could devise a way to harm it. (laughs) Satisfied that his punking of Metropolis meant that the metal was secure, he fashioned the key that would also serve as a marker for airplanes unless he hung it in his fortress because you know airplanes won't need it then. After a quick shower, actually a super blowtorch that will destroy any fatal space dust he might pick up on his travels, we learn about the disintegration pit and a story where he and Supergirl turned on each other thanks to some hate gas given off of a brainwash bomb they threw into the pit. Superman begins to take inventory of his rooms in order to find the cause of Earth's eventually destruction, as Dominus kind of pointed to the fortress as being there the culprit. He passes through his hall of super weapons and then past statues of his parents to the three-dimensional display of destruction of his home world. I assume that Dashboard Confessional is constantly piped into that part of the fortress. <laughs> we, get, we get into another flashback of the time Lois stayed in the fortress that involved her getting spanked by one of his robots. That's not in the story, but that happened in the original. Just putting that out there. Uh, before entering before entering the communication center, where he can monitor monitor any transmission of the planet in case there is trouble. We see him go past the gas jets that spray the fortress with an antibacterial gas once a month to destroy any alien microbes he might pick up because Superman is all about fail-safes, and then into his trophy room, which contains a dinosaur just like the one Batman has, and the Titanic because he hates James Cameron. There's another flashback to the time a bunch of people broke into the fortress and it all took an evil plot by Lex Luthor, followed by Superman checking out Supergirl's quarters. Superman then remembers how he found the bottle city of Candor and how he managed to return it and its hands to their proper size. We see Superman's robot making room, the view screen to the Phantom Zone, and his intergalactic zoo. After another brief scene with Dominus and Otis, Superman goes to his recreational rooms, which bowling because he's a fan of Grease 2, a robot he spars with because he likes Rocky, and a pain room because he enjoyed as good as it gets. He tries to write an entry into his super cool diary, but can't, so he checks out the various rooms devoted to his friends and loved ones, and Crypto, who he obviously cares nothing about if the Who's Entry cover uh, taught me anything. Meanwhile, Dominus and Otis discuss their plans to go to Earth Prime, back at Superman finds the cosmic arc he built in case things got really bad, then sits down and watches television and drinks a chocolate shake. No, really. That's what he does. Finally, he puts it all together. What if it wasn't one thing that would set off the chain reaction to destroy the Earth, but a Rube Goldbergian set of events that would destroy his adopted world? He rushes into action and plugs up the antibacterial jets, and both he and Dominus wait to see if the Earth will be destroyed. It isn't, and Superman confronts Dominus, who is revealed to be Lex Luthor. <gasps> you, all probably, you all thought I was probably going to make an old man Weatherby there, but I decided to play against him. They fight, and Lex thinks he has the upper hand when Otis, and it's not his name, I just want to call him Otis, uh, finds the kryptonite ray gun, but turns it. Out, but it turns out that Otis is all freaked out that his world was almost destroyed, so he gives the gun over to Superman. Lex wonders Superman found a secret lab. And Superman explains how he did so, and then Lex says that Superman makes it sound so easy, and Superman says that it wasn't really that hard. We'll see. Had the time. 
Shows him flying, you know, into the earth, you know, winks at the camera and then flies up. That's, that's right. Hey, no problem. We're, we're all part of the same team. Uh, yeah. <laughs> First of all, great job, Mike. Great job. Because this is an incredibly, oh, incredibly dense story. And that flew by. Uh, I would have mm-hmm. really gotten bogged down in the details. You know, okay. I am not, as everybody knows, like the particularly biggest fan of Superman. And I am only vaguely familiar with the minutia of the Superman world. But what this comic does, I mean, you know, there's the phrase about jumping into the pool hip deep. This is jumping mm-hmm. into the pool over your head and then yeah. laying on the floor of the ocean and just letting it wash over you. Because this is so deep with Superman, Silver Age, Bronze Age detail. And that is one of the things I love about it. Because when I had this comic as a kid, I didn't know any of this stuff. And if you, mm-hmm. enjoy, if you enjoyed Crazy Superman, this is Crazy Superman. From just all the details they throw in of this is the whole idea, just the conceit of like, huh, the world's about to explode. Maybe I should contact the Justice League. Nah, I'll just check out the Fortress of Solitude and go through all my rooms because why not? You know, you're like, okay, all right, I'm accepting this premise. Let's go. And like this, the Fortress, first of all, we need to talk about the artwork, I guess, first. Is I love oh, yes. I love the fact that Ross Andrew obviously this thing was clearly meant to be a treasury from the beginning, and Ross Andrew took advantage of that. And you can tell first of all the splash page is great, the first shot of Superman flying with travels, but it really kicks off on pages two and three, that double page splash of Superman flying into space. That is one great Superman image. Mm-hmm. When he goes well, up, this, up this and away, this book is thing. full of those. Yeah. Andrew really, really took advantage of the size. I mean, he really knew how to use it. And all the shots of the stuff exploding, when Superman plunges into the meteor, the full-page shot of Dominus, uh, I think that's terrific. I mean, Andrew really – I mean, I do – I agree with Mr. Thomas. I think Ross Andrew was, was very underrated, uh, especially as a storyteller. And he really does a great job. I mean, this thing, once all the flashbacks kick in, there's a ton of stuff to, con- to convey in this story. I mean, lots of concepts. And Andrew never makes it look crowded. You know, it all flows really naturally. You can go from scene to scene to scene, and it all works really well. This is a really handsome-looking book. Yeah, I, I really got into the kind of the widescreen element of the story towards the end where Superman was imagining all the things that would lead up to the earth being destroyed and that two page splash of the earth exploding. Yep. It's just like, wow. And and I, I have said for years, uh, basically since I really started looking into the bronze age of Superman, that Ross Andrew is one of those artists that doesn't get enough appreciation for his Superman or his Spider-Man work Mm. because he worked on both characters and did, I, not workmanlike work. He did fantastic work on both. I mean, he was the one. I mean, you know, it was kind of obvious that Neil Adams was probably inking Superman's face in the Superman versus Amazing Spider-Man one from '76. Mm-hmm. But all the layouts were Ross Andrew, so it, you know, it's obvious that the big nature of that story came from him. And you're right; he just takes like every time he can take advantage of the fact that this thing is tabloid size. He just goes for it. The The detail in Dominus's armor is actually pretty stunning. Yep. And, and there's so many shots of Dominus just kind of standing there that I'm just like, wow. I mean, I'm just sitting there staring at it going, wait, this, this, this outfit's kind of goofy looking. But it looks so awesome at this size. 
that I'm willing to let it go. And you could tell kind of the Star Wars influence of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, where, yeah. You know, this this has got more than a little Darth Vader in it, but that's not a that's by no means a bad thing. Nope. And Tangle was an interesting inking choice for him. Uh, I, I just I would have expected someone a little more because I, I you know when I think of Romeo Tangle I think of him inking like George Perez on mm-hmm. New Teen Titans or mm-hmm. so, or uh, he inked Daryl Banks on the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern books in the nineties. So maybe I just didn't think of him as this era, but I guess, you know, it's just right when he was starting his career. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that and the uh, that that shot of that you were talking about of Superman flying into space and the shadowing on his face and all the really it, it's just it's just awesome. It's like they, they did uh, reprint this in a trade paperback. Oh, I didn't know that. Huh. Yeah, there's a there's a Fort- Superman Fortress of Solitude uh, trade paperback. The cover to this is the cover to the trade. Oh wow! Um, oh, okay. And I kind of leaf through it, and I'm like, you know, this doesn't work trade size. This doesn't work standard comic book size. Mm. You really have to blow this thing up to uh, uh, to really appreciate the uh, you know the full immensity of it. Yeah, I mean, it said Andrew really knew. I mean, the the first shot we get of Superman, it's on page uh, twelve and thirteen, where Superman lands at the outside the fortress, and it's a widescreen image. You know, it's a vista vision image of Superman in the foreground sliding into the snow with the key in the foreground. Now, I would love to get into the minu- the details of every single crazy flashback in this book, <laughs> but we can't have this episode before hour long. So I'm going to try and do my best to just talk about some of the things that I didn't know about or some of the things that stuck with me as a kid where I was like, wait a minute, that's a Like, what was the thing? Like, first of all, Superman's first Fortress of Solitude was on a meteor? I never knew that. Did you know that? <laughs> no, that, uh, that was one of my blind spots. And I was just like, huh. But at the same time, I was not surprised. No. No, well, none of it is surprising, actually, when you realize how crazy this is. And, I mean, the whole idea that Superman was using the metal that he made the key out of, and he tested it by just dumping it in the middle of Metropolis and just lets all the, uh, you know, municipalities of Metropolis try and melt it, and, and none of them know it was there. It's like, it's, you know, Superman, this is tax money going to waste here, really, all these people trying to melt your giant glob of... Gold no, but seriously, I gotta fig- I gotta figure out if it's gonna if it's gonna work or not. I, yeah. It just makes me laugh every time. Every time I see Superman being an, an obvious jerk, but he probably doesn't see that he th- he's being a jerk. Uh, it's just oh man, I just I just get a I get a really big kick out of that. I really do. Sorry, kids, no field trip to the Metropolis Zoo this year. We have to try and melt Superman's metal down to see if it can work as his door lock. Oh, okay, all right, I guess so. That's fine. Uh, and so I love the whole idea when Superman arrives in the Fortress of Solitude, he gets a flame bath. That's a, good, that's a great detail. And him just standing there with his arms uh, on his sides and the flame just shoots on him. Like, that's a great, like, what a crazy little detail that happened. And I hope that that's, I hope that that is computer generated, that it only shoots itself on Superman, because God help if Batman shows up in the Fortress of Solitude. <laughs> Well, obviously it doesn't because Batman totally punked Superman uh, in the first appearance of the fortress. Uh, as super, uh, basically, Superman keeps getting these messages. This is like, I know who you are. I'm going to destroy you, and it causes him like all these nightmares, and he almost like drops an ocean liner that he's saving. Oh, right, right. And it turns out it's all Batman's joke for their for his for the uh, anniversary of when he came to Earth. <laughs> <laughs> for the man who has everything. 
yeah, it's amazing. So then they did this whole flashback where him and Supergirl squared off, and the reason they were pitted against each other is because of this this bird that causes uh, like uh, brings out your your anger at one another. This two headed bird and stuff like that's like a crazy deal. Like what the hell is that about? And that give that gives us a shot to see Supergirl in her hip hugger outfit. Which mm-hmm. I really enjoyed. I don't remember that. We get to see Superman. Uh, we have his, his room with all of his weapons, which seems incredibly unsafe to have all this high-powered weaponry just sort of sitting around. Like, okay, that's a thing. Uh, and then we get the giant statues of Joel and Lara. Now, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It feels a little, am I being mean? A little get over it-ish? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I don't know. To, to build 40-foot statues of your dead parents? I don't yeah, know. It feels a little weird. Well, can't get a room. These guys get like these, you know, like you know, d- d- Lincoln sitting on the throne, yeah, Orioles uh, exactly. nice things. No, but to be fair, it is something that they have carried into other iterations of Superman. So I guess it's stuck okay. because the post-crisis Superman had it, and then on a recent episode of Supergirl, they went to the fortress and there was uh, ice sculptures. Of Jor-El and Lara, uh, so now it's live action. Wow, I, that's pretty. All right, that's pretty cool. I gotta say, <laughs> I, I, I like that. That's pretty neat. Uh, I like. Well, on the same page, we find out that he has a room devoted to Luthor. <laughs> like, why would you do that? This guy wants to kill you. It's not amusing. Like, what is that? You know, like I mean, I understand he's your greatest foe, but I don't know. It just seems weird to me. You know, and you're like, uh, you know, at what level does he cut off the villains? You know, it's like, we have a Brainiac room, I got a Mixes Piddlick room, I got a Bizarro room. Parasite room? Nah, I don't need to give him a room. Prankster? Nah, I don't need to give it. You know, Jay Wilbur Wolfingham? Nah, he gets a he gets a picture. He gets a free picture in the lobby. We don't need to go crazy here. He's got a couple DVDs of What's-His-Name's movies for Terra Man. Yes. And uh, he does he does have that one lone poster of Zardoz. Yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> yeah for Vardok. Yeah, exactly, Zardoz, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was very, very weird. So then there's a flashback to when Lois Lane uh, stayed over the first time, and there's this whole bit where he used his super breath to to sort of, like, play a prank on her and, like, send her bed flying around the, the bedroom. Now, you know, again, this is – I'm not Shag, so we all know that. Uh, but I will say, uh, Rossi Andrew draws a very, very comely Lois Lane. Like, she's in her nightgown. Like, she looks really quite fetching. Yes, the only thing about this scene that I can't get out of my head is that what they don't show you is after she bumps into that robot, mm. he actually gives her a spanking. Oh. And then oh. Superman shows up, and there's this panel of her dusting, and they've got, like, the little pain lines coming off of her bottom. Oh, oh. And she's just like, I'm not going to be able to sit after what that oh, robot no, did to me. No. And- <laughs> oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no. So it's just one of those things that I can't now get out of my head because it's turned into a meme. Oh, my God. Note to self, visit eBay after I'm done recording this episode. <laughs> That's very interesting. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, then we see the, as, as you as you mentioned, we see the, uh, the trophy room where he has the giant dinosaur and the Titanic and all these crazy things. And, uh, you know, again, I understand the idea of a trophy room. That seems to make a lot of sense. I don't know what it is with, you know, everybody with the dinosaurs. That seems to be a thing. But, okay, you know, that's fine. It, it would make sense that Superman has a dinosaur more than, than Batman. And then, of course, he has a cage for something called a Venusian lizard dog, which does not exist. Yes. 
So I don't know what now yeah, that's all about. It's kind of a strange little bit. And then said there's another flashback where some people invaded the fortress, and he had to uh, pretend that, of course, Superman and Clark Kent are two different people. So there's that whole bit. And the guy that ends up breaking in is Luthor. And there's this whole bit about where uh, Luthor says, I wasn't in it for the money while you were busy collecting space jewels and trinkets. I meticulously planted a deadly bomb where Superman himself is sure to set it off. More than anything else in the world, I wanted him and his fortress annihilated. I do it in the voice of the challenge of the Super Friends Luthor. I plan to be long gone before the Big Bang, but I might silence both of you. And then the, Luthor ends up shooting, so the guy, Superman, saves his life. And they, there's this great moment where it ends in prison, where Superman says, you would have let the bomb explode here and sacrificed even your own life just as long as I died too? Luthor, do you really hate me that much? You already know the answer to that, Superman. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah, when when they did that relationship right of how much Luther truly hates him, uh, and I think Carrie Bates did it the best towards the end of the Bronze Age when they did uh, Action 544 mm-hmm. with Luther Unleashed where he gets the power armor. Right. I mean, they just hate each other at the beginning of that story. Like Superman's flying off going, that is the closest I've ever come to taking a human life. Mm. <laughs> it's just like, wow. Wow, Luther, you're really that much of a scuzzbag. Congratulations. Yeah, Superman hates you. That's like that's like getting your face mauled by Jesus. I mean, it's just like when you press, piss off the Prince of Peace, that's that's that, that's that's accomplishing something. Yeah, Mr. Rogers is like, F that guy. You're like, whoa, all right, okay, all right, let's slow your roll here. So then we have a little flashback to Brainiac and the whole thing about Candor. So we have <laughs> that whole thing. Yeah, Brainiac looming over Metropolis and Candor. And there was this whole bit about that Candor can, like, Candor is in another dimension now? I, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was, it was in 1981. It was. I didn't know that. I didn't know it at the time. Yeah, it was, it was like one of those things where not only were, when, when they re enlarged the, the Bottle City, there was uh, imperfection in the process. So everyone's all excited. And then all the buildings start crumbling. And it turns out that they could enlarge people, but they couldn't enlarge inorganic things. Now, why everyone suddenly wasn't naked is not covered. <laughs> um, but everyone's kind of pissed at Superman. And it's Van Z, not the, the podcaster, but the... Uh, <laughs> The uh, the Superman's uh, exact uh, duplicate uh, or uh, doppelganger in Candor, because uh, he was uh, Nightwing, right uh, down there. He steps forward. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa! Hey guys, let the chill. Look, Superman has taken care of us for years. We can do this. We got this. So it was basically they wanted privacy, so they purposefully put their civilization in something that wasn't in phase with the earth except every 18 months and there's the tragedy or something like that and there's the tragedy or or sadness that supergirl can't see her parents but every certain amount of time Hmm. so and she because she chooses to go back to earth with superman it's actually a really good story Hmm. all right cool all right yeah that's like all that uh we visit superman has his kryptonite storage room where he has an anti-kryptonite suit and then there's this uh, later on in the page, and this this is something I've always found uh, very chilling. You know, when I was a kid, he goes to visit the uh, the access portal for the Phantom Zone, and, mm-hmm. he, and he clicks it on, and staring at him across the screen are three villains and Monel, who of course at mm-hmm. the time was still stuck in the Phantom Zone. There's something to me really creepy about the idea that like 
I don't know that like the minute you turn on the the the, the projector, like they're just standing there ready to look at you. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like they're not doing anything in the fan zone. They're literally just standing around waiting for someone to kind of peek in at them. I, like that's very chilling to me. And then, you know, Superman talks about that. Uh, he's like, yeah, Monel doesn't belong here with these other do batters, and I'll never give up trying to find a f- way to free him from the Phantom Zone. But I can't worry about that now. And then there's a helpful little editorial note from Len Wein: Monel was finally freed in the 30th century by the famed Legion of Superheroes. <laughs> Len, that's a thousand years from now. <laughs> like that's kind of a big deal. Well, that's Superman's thing. It's just like you know, he uh, when when we were talking about Candor. He, he had, like, a similar thought, like, you know, I will never stop fi- searching for a way to, you know, re- return them to normal size. But, you know, I, I got other things to do right now. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. I love this. Perhaps I'll find a way to restore it to a normal size one day and live with my own people again. Someday. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. That's fine. Superman, got other things. You know, I mean, I would argue, Superman, if you, if you ever went to see a movie... Uh, you were wasting time when Monel was rotting in the Phantom Zone with a bunch of criminals. But okay, you know I'm not gonna. But there's just I don't know. There's something about the way that um, Ross Andrew draws it that it's yeah, the, the four of them staring at Superman and the fact that they don't get any dialogue. To, to me, it's like they're ghosts that are just staring at you. If, I really, I mean, I'm I'm not even trying to be funny. To me, I find that whole notion of the Phantom Zone and someone being trapped there who's not a criminal. Very unsettling. As a kid, it was like just really creepy. Now, if you could do that right, that's like Japanese horror level of scary because a lot of writers really didn't do much with the Phantom Zone. It was always like, well, we're going to release somebody like, you know, uh, Quee XL comes out and it turns because his sentence is up and it turns out that he wasn't supposed to be there in the first place, but he's not really a bad guy. So he sacrifices his powers to save Superman from this gold kryptonite trap. So then Superman and Perry White get together and they rename him Charlie and he starts working for the Daily Planet. Wow. And Steve Gerber did a lot of stuff with the Phantom Zone where it turns out there's like it's alive essentially. Oh, he wrote that miniseries, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the miniseries and DC Comics Presents number 97, which was the last issue. Oh, the last of that issue, series. right? Right, right, right. Uh, and it's just like one of those things like like I think Ross Andrew in this book kind of gives it how I would love to see it live action where it's like stark white and people are just kind of walking around. There's no sound. So you don't even hear like people and they're just staring at you. Oh yeah. That's, that's and and it's just like, and, and, and Monel's trapped in there and he didn't do anything wrong. He was just dying of lead poisoning. (laughs) And, and it's just like, it's like really tragic that it was basically this great idea that Jorel had that later writers were like, you know, there's something really messed up about this, and we need to talk about that. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, that's a great page. Yeah, I really, really like that. It's, it's, it's. I, I remember that panel as a kid, and I read it again today, and it's still just very weird. So then Superman takes a trip to his zoo, where he has all these different animals. He doesn't appear to like give them much room to yeah, like, walk around. Yeah, a little upset like, by that, actually. Yeah, they're just in these glass cases, and they have like no room to move around. Like, come on, Superman! Like, just, we're you know, let's not do factory farming here, buddy. Like, let them. Let's let's do some free range aliens. But okay, you know, whatever, that's fine. Uh, and then there's this great bit where this uh, giant space lizard 
he spots it via his trouble alert, basically, and it's about to eat a satellite, and he's like, oh, I don't have time for this. And then Green Lantern shows up to take care of it. And I love that. I lo- that's The whole idea of, like, superheroes as jobbers, like, this yeah. is just, like they're, they're working. He's like, oh, Green Lantern basically covered my shift for me. That's great. Good old Green Lantern. I keep forgetting this is his specter- sector of space to guard as well as mine. I'm off the hook. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Like, like you almost you see him like crack it open a Colt forty five. That's great. I love that. <laughs> the um the animated series, the Bruce Tim animated series, had a really great take on the zoo. Uh, their fortress was really cool, and he basically gave them habitats to live in. Okay, I must have seen uh, it because I've seen every episode of that show. I don't remember that ex- specifically, but I must have seen because, it at some point. Because during the I think he took the idea from when he and Lobo were kidnapped. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, he like when you would when he he would fly in from the water and come up, and it seemed like everything like the zoo like wasn't like he puts this giant bug in a cage or like a glass case, and I'm just like you know you know how does he stretch his legs? How does he you know move around? I mean, it's just like it's almost like he stuffed them. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, and, and this is his presentation of it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a little on the odd side. So then we we cut over to Dominus, and he talks to Otis, as as we'll call him. He talks to Otis about his plan and stuff like that. He's very relaxed. I love Dominus is constantly yeah. leaning on stuff. He's just got he's got his leg up. He's looking very relaxed. He's very confident in his plan. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that, that 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 panel you're talking about where he's just. Kind of like, you know, just kicking back and, and, and Roger, as this guy's name is, really is. But Otis is like kind of lounging back in mm-hmm. his little like hat of hat of fear. I don't know what the I don't know what they're trying to go for there. But uh, but even like down on the bottom of that page, Dominus is just kind of like just leaning against stuff yeah. like like he's put, like he's like a JCPenney catalog. model. <laughs> what you thinking about Dominus? I don't know. Stuff. So back at the fortress, uh, Superman takes in a game of bowling, which has like a thousand pins. And of course he gets a strike because, you know, whatever. Uh, He takes on kind of like a rock'em, sock'em robot thing. Then we see the Superman paints. That's a nice little wrinkle. Uh, he paints these giant canvases. He he is questioning his own skills. He says, "I'm basically I'm not I'm adequate, but not particularly imaginative." We get to see one of Superman's paintings, and it looks like a '70s sci-fi book cover. So that's kind of thing that that he's into, which I kind of like. Uh, then we see his diary, which is a giant book that he writes with a giant uh, robot hand. It's kind of a weird detail. Now here we go. Now we're getting into the really weird stuff, where. <laughs> We find out that Superman has exhibits of everyone in his family. So he has a room devoted to Lois, to Jimmy. With a lock of her hair. With a lock of her hair, not creepy at all. Then Jimmy, Perry White, Clark Kent, in case somebody comes into the fortress that doesn't know he's secretly Clark Kent, Supergirl, Wonder Woman, Batman, and then he bemoans the fact that he hasn't gotten around to building a room for Captain Marvel yet, which is strange. He's only met Captain Marvel like twice. Uh, I would, I would argue maybe, you know, Flash or Green Lantern deserve a room ahead of Captain Marvel, but okay. Uh, Another room for his uh, Jor-El and Lara, a room for the Kents, a room for Crypto. And then now the really weird thing is a series of statues of all of these people standing next to statues of themselves in their civilian identities. Why would you have this? <laughs> well, he obviously contacted Kenner. <laughs> okay. And 
he was just like, look, I've got, I, I've got an idea for an action figure line. Um, and then he realized that he would totally blow his friend's secret identities. But Captain Marvel's there in the background. He is. Captain Marvel's uh, there. We do see him. But, uh, and you can tell, I, I think the Captain Marvel mention was because it was Roy. And, you know, Roy loves Captain Marvel. So, but yeah, that part of it was just like, why do you have this? You have an entire room devoted to throwing people off of the fact that you're Clark Kent. <laughs> Two rooms later, and and, and, and and Ross Andrews' art's great. I don't know what's up with his crypto, because that's that's an odd-looking crypto. It looks but, a little uh, emaciated. Yeah, it's just like, apparently this is a real crypto that he hasn't fed, because as you, <laughs> and, Shag, as you and Shag established, he just didn't care about crypto for years. So, <laughs> because remember, he came back all sickly and stuff. So, But yeah, what, what is... What is with the, you know, and, and the funny thing about the secret identity thing is, like, he had to pick out what Dick Grayson was going to wear, and he puts him in an ugly blue suit. <laughs> I'm just fascinated by this. Like, why would you do that? Now, there's a detail here that, I mean, that, I mean this whole book is quintessential Silver Age, Bronze Age, Superman, but there's a detail here that I love pointing out where he talks about that in case anybody uh, – comes into this room that is unauthorized he has programmed this whole diorama to vibrate into hyperspace until they leave sure why not that's just an amazing piece of technology that i'm using for my stuffed likenesses of my friends like just the, the, the whole tossed off nature of that comment is what makes me love this book it's just that's just that's just the way things were like yeah I just yeah it vibrates into hyperspace not a big deal it's fine okay so uh, we go back and we cut over to Dominus, and we, we start to see that uh, Roger is getting a little worried about Dominus's plan because he I don't think he's really taken into account, you know that you know everybody is going to die on on this planet. So Roger's starting to, to get a little worried about Dominus's plan. Back at the fortress, Superman introduces us to what's it called? The Cosmic Arc. You betcha. And, and I can only imagine that when this would be filmed, you would have fifteen minutes of the camera swooping around it with a Jerry Goldsmith score. <laughs> Robert Wise directed the sequence. <laughs> 20 minutes of lovingly close-ups of the cosmic arc. I mean, this this was a toy that should have been made. Oh, this yeah. Thing. Man, could you imagine the so Mego version of this oh, where everybody man. fits inside it? It would have been fantastic. And, and Ross Andrew gives it two pages. I mean, he makes mm -hmm. this thing feel impressive. And the Cosmic Arc, for any of you who don't know, this was the idea that in case, basically, Armageddon ever came to planet Earth, Superman, by his own volition, would take certain people that he chooses to survive and piles them into the Cosmic Arc and takes them to another planet where they would start a new human race. Surprise, surprise, most of the people he takes are A, his friends, and B, superheroes. And, and, and C, not Steve Lombard. <laughs> yeah, well, screw that guy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's just like it's just like he's flying off Lois, Perry, and Jimmy, and Steve's like going, "Hey, hey, wait, guys, yes." <laughs> I'll just stay here and die with Morgan Edge. It's fine. Uh, there is a wonderful detail that even as a child, I noticed on page forty-six where we see Superman talking to the survivors on the new planet. Aquaman is there. Yes, he saved Aquaman. He doesn't appear. He saved Mira, but he saved Aquaman. <laughs> So it's good to know. She's standing right behind Superman. He is. So that, that's what we're going to assume. He also appears to have saved the top. Yeah, uh, what is that guy? The guy with the stripes I, across his chest. I don't know what that's I have no idea, but yeah. it's so weird. Got to have villains to fight. 
It'd be boring over there. So you, it'd be funny. Like each one of you gets to pick one of your villains. <laughs> Take one of your villains along with you. <laughs> and Batman looks at the Joker and said, "I always loved you." <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I don't have to kill you, but I don't have to save you, or whatever. He does that? I just leave Joker stay behind. So I, then, and that's when Superman decides we, we we retreat to his hideaway, his living room, and that's when he gets open the uh, he has the chocolate shake and he watches some television. He watches a whole bunch of television, including the Wonder Woman TV show, which is apparently a thing in this universe. I, I love his taste in, in in television, though. He likes Charlie Chaplin. Uh, obviously, he misses Titano because he's watching King Kong. Robin Hood, uh, Frankenstein. Yeah, he likes old-timey movies. The uh, Marx Brothers and, and Bogies there. Yeah. And apparently he's he's watching, um, I don't know if that's supposed to be Winston Churchill or uh, one of the premieres of the uh, USSR, but either way, in the middle there. And then he's obviously watching a Marlboro commercial because this is 1981. There you go. So, yeah, you can he's still watching, have that. Yep, he's watching nine TVs at once. So yeah, so he kicks back. <laughs> the, uh, the he watches the Marlboro commercial and goes, "I'm gonna throw somebody into a truck one day." <laughs> That's right. Don't do it. The people. I'm smiling. Sorry, I didn't do that. So uh, so yeah. So as the as the clock ticks down, which basically you know Earth doesn't have much time left. He sort of reviews everything that he's seen, and he still can't figure out how all this is going to happen. So then we get some more flashbacks and we talk about the giant insect creature, the giant uh, like kind of crab looking thing. And that's when he starts to get the idea that maybe as, as Mike said, that all of this is, you know, it's not one thing. It's all different things, you know, combined together. And then we get this whole thing where he imagines what would happen to earth if it explodes. And we literally get to see Superman as he imagines himself dying, being Mm -hmm. torn apart, which is, pretty amazing and then there's this superb four page sequence two sets of splash pages of armageddon of the earth cracking open and then there's this great shot of metropolis as it just breaks open we see poor lois and perry about to fall out of a window there's people just falling through the sky it's really pretty terrifying really it's it's it's, you know it's, it's armageddon and then Boom, page 58 and 59, is the Earth exploding. I mean, this is like Michael Bay's dream, is to mm-hmm. be able to show this. And here's Ross Andrew and Romeo Tangel just killing it. I mean, this, is, this, this Earth is bursting at the seams of these pages. And it's, it's a very, very powerful set of images. Yeah, it's, it's like you know at this point that it was meant for a treasury. Because this is this would look good as a double page splash in a regular sized comic, but it only looks. It's like when we were covering over on Views that Justice League story that uh, Jerry Conway wrote that they was originally meant for a Treasury oh, and the that Earth they die screaming. Yeah, yeah. You could tell like when you're looking at that artwork, like I think this is supposed to be printed bigger. Yep. You can't print this small. You can't print that two-page splash of the Earth literally coming apart and chunks of it flying into space, which probably isn't scientifically accurate, but looks damn cool. It looks amazing. It looks absolutely – it really gets you. You're like, oh, this is what this is. You know, We've seen this threatened in a, you know, a million comic books, but here it is, and this is what it would look like. It's pretty horrible. So Superman uh, sits there, and he waits for the clock to tick down, and we literally get a counter of 1259, 52, 53, 54 – Finally, it hits 1 o'clock, 105, 106, and the Earth is still with us. And it, Superman breaks out into a hearty laughter. And then we cut over to Dominus, and instead, it's Superman meets Dominus and stops him from taking off. 
he cracks open, well, Dominus whips out a gun and he shoots Superman. And of course, it only works temporarily. Superman knocks Dominus off his feet and he pulls off the helmet. And as Mike pointed out, we find out that it is, in fact, Luthor the whole time as we know it. And uh, Luthor's or slash Dominus's henchman uh, actually hands his weapon over to Superman. He doesn't really want it. He, he's willing to take his punishment. And uh, he's just going to go to jail. He doesn't want to be part of Dominus's plan. And the whole story ends again with the three of them just sitting there. And Superman mentions again, you know, he figured out once he had the time. Now, my only complaint about this is I do you feel this way? The story wraps up a little too abruptly. Oh, yeah. They, it wraps up in they, one page, basically. Yeah, it's like we ran out of time. We, yeah. we came up with all this awesome stuff and now we have to end the issue and it ends kind of like, you know, it ain't no thribble at all with, you know, a little light jaunty music yeah. playing in the background or something, which isn't disappointing because, you know, you get to the end of this and it's been so amazing, even with all the craziness, you know, you're just having such a good time that you're willing to overlook it. But yeah, if I was going to have a criticism, it would be like, it's just over. He yeah. figures out it's Lex and that's it. Yeah. Like, I would have loved to have seen one more page of after Superman carts Luthor off to prison of Superman back in the fortress, kicking up his heels and relaxing. Like, that would have been a nice way to end it of like, hey, now I can relax in the fortress for real because the earth isn't going to be destroyed. But that's a very minor criticism of this story. I, I said, as we've talked about on many episodes of, of Fire and Water, I'm not the biggest Superman fan in the world. I liked him more as a member of the Justice League. And, you know, I'm not in... I could never quite buy into all the minutia of this, of this crazy Superman world. But this book is just so, like, energetic and fun and goofy that I love it. Like, I just love it. And it kind of makes me wish there had been more of these sort of visits to other characters' worlds. Now, I mean, I think the fortress was so big that you probably couldn't have done it with other people, other characters, but like it might've been cool if they had done a treasury of Batman's Batcave, like mm-hmm. an exam, examine it or paradise Island. Like that might've been really, or even let's just be super crazy Atlantis. Like it might've been really neat to see the hat, you know, the, the settings of each yeah. of these characters. Yeah. With the, with Batman though, you not only do the Batcave, but you go through like all the Batmobiles, like in treasury oh, yeah. size, oh, showing page man. after page of you know the '40s Batmobile and the '60s and the the current one, and then you go into the planes and the fact that you have the Batcave at Wayne Manor and the Batcave at the bottom of the Wayne Tower and all that kind of stuff. So you could have really filled a, a treasury with that. Uh, I think that would have been so cool. It's almost like you would have wanted them to do like a treasury sized version of the untold legend of Batman at that. Yes, point. exactly. Um, yep. With uh, and and with Paradise Island and yeah, Atlantis. Why not? I mean, at this point, he was in adventure comics, right? Yes. So you know, Aquaman was. You know, the, the more I look at Aquaman, because every once in a while DC has sales on Aquaman stuff, so I pick up, like, the adventure comic stuff and, and the other stuff at, like, 99 cents an issue, and I realize, and I feel bad about this, it's just like, God, he was such a going concern for decades that I'm surprised he didn't get one of these for, for you know, like, his world. I mean, I'm sorry, a treasury-sized fight between Black Manta and Ocean Master and Aquaman would have been amazing. Uh, uh, so would have been. Oh, but I'm preaching things. to the choir here. Yes, exactly. So. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get any argument from me. Uh, the, the last thing to mention about this specific comic is the inside cover, back cover, features an ad, the We Don't Rest on Our Laurels ad, 
which features all these covers of, of their books. Now, it mentions at the bottom, it says, and coming this fall, Batman versus the Hulk, a spectacular event, don't miss it. Now, I'm sure, Mike, you have spent just as many hours perusing through old comics as I have. You probably maybe even spent more. Have you ever seen an ad for Batman versus the Hulk in a comic book? I think I have. You think um, I have? I've never seen one. This is the it, only time I can think of it ever being mentioned in another comic book. Where did you see it? I, I think it was in one of those Daily Planet pages. Okay, all right, that's right. I did see that. You're right. But, I mean, like, in terms of, like, a house ad? Yeah, I, I, don't, think it, I don't think it got one. Spider-Man got a couple that are really nice looking. Yeah. Um, right. And this house, I'm sorry, this house ad gets me excited. Because this is everything that is awesome about the early 80s DC Universe on one page. Uh, starting with the All-Star Squadron in one of the greatest covers in comic yes. book history. It is um, fantastic. Well, it's funny that both of Roy's books are front and center. Yeah. <laughs> All-Star, All-Star Squadron and Iraq are the front books that we've pictured. Yeah, that's that that's that's not a that's not a coincidence. Especially because uh, I, I I didn't reach out to Roy Thomas, but I dug out uh, the digital copy that I had because I got it when I bought the physical copy of Alter Ego Number One Hundred, which is like a book length interview with Roy Thomas about his entire career with DC Comics. Um, it's really interesting to read. Cliff Notes version of it is that he has a lot of problems with certain things that went on, um, <laughs> i.e. the crisis. Uh, yes. But he, he talked about this very briefly, that he really liked doing it. But then he mentions, you know, and then he got to write that world's finest story where he mixed the radio series of Superman into the origin of the Superman Batman team. Oh, right. 271. Uh, Chris and, and Cindy did that over on Superman. And that's such an amazing issue of yes, that story. It so yes, it, it seemed like at the beginning of his career, DC, DC kind of, you know, they were pulling over a heavy hitter of Marvel. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's face it. Roy Thomas saved Marvel twice. One for bringing Conan. And two for bringing Star Wars. So wow. this guy was, yeah. yeah, I mean, think about that. Uh, so this guy's a heavy hitter. So the fact that he didn't want to work on the, he, you know, he was working on like the big guns, but didn't really want to work on the big guns. I mean, this is, this is different. And I, I I'm going to put out the theory that one of the reasons this came out on the 18th is that they couldn't do a treasury sized adaptation of Superman two because they would have had to pay Mario Puzo money for that. And they weren't going to do that which is why you never got comic book adaptations or novelizations of the first two Superman films. What a, what a tragedy. <laughs> yeah, it really is because, I mean, you got those two cool, like really super cool, no pun intended there, uh, treasury like guides to the movies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which are really cool. Uh, and you got the Elliot S. Magan books, which are also really good. Uh, but it's just like, you know, you never got that novelization of Superman the movie. In a time where novelizations were huge. Yeah. So, huh. I mean, the cl- closest I have ever seen it is around the time of Superman Returns. DC did four prequel comics to the movie. And Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray wrote a Krypton special where it kind of adapted the last days of Krypton. Hmm. Uh, so you got to see, like, you know, the Marlon Brando Jorel and all that. But no, they, and, and you can't do it now. Because the great thing about those adaptations, like the Star Wars adaptation is a great example of that, is it has stuff that wasn't in the film. Right, right. Whereas now you would just do a straight-up adaptation, then you're just seeing a comic book version of the film. So it's not as exciting, but yeah. 
Huh. It, it, it hurts. It does a little it bit. Does, it does, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I wake up screaming, but that's okay. That's all right, yeah. Um, now, in terms of uh, you know the history of Superman, one thing I wanted to ask you about, because uh, Action Comics number 500, which, mm-hmm. came, which came out just a couple of years before this, which is, again, like a kind of a history of Superman. It's more – it's not uh, Fortress-centric. It's more uh, just like his life. It's a, it's a whole tour of his life. That was originally supposed to be a treasury. It was, it was going to be a, a treasury edition, and then it got repurposed as Auction Comics number 500 uh, in regular size. So that would have you know, that would have been something we could have seen. Now, I mean, as a Superman fan, as, as well, for any of us that are fans of these characters that have had to live through these you know, re- reboots of these characters, uh, we have to try and you know, enjoy the new version, even though it's not the one that we grew up on. And you, you, I know you are a fan of some of the Superman comics that are going on now. Um, but I'm, I'm curious as to what your, your perspective is on this, because like one of the things I like about this Fortress book is that it, it, it embraces the mm-hmm. long history of Superman and all the craziness that goes on. We don't have that anymore because of the constant reboots. Like we don't, you know, you really can't tell a story. I don't think of Superman relaying all the crazy stuff that's happened to him because in constant continuity, he's only been around a couple of years. And I wonder, do you feel like it loses something that we don't have these storied histories anymore of these characters? Uh, It it plays off of two things. One, uh, I will agree with you that I think because – now, I'm a post-crisis kid. So that's my bread and butter when it comes to Superman. But even that Superman had a fortress and Krypton had a history and it was something that they developed over 20 years. So I got – and I got to experience 19 of those. So I I think we do lose something when we constantly reboot. But I think it also means that you have to kind of go back and hold on to this stuff and kind of learn from it. Because I think think the reason that Superman is successful now in the rebirth era is that the people behind his books are not trying to reinvent the wheel. And I think that has been Superman's big problem in both movie – And the comic book is that all of these people are like, well, what's wrong with Superman? Let's try to do this with him. Let's try to do that with him. We're going to take away his secret identity. We're going to, we're going to make him kind of moody. We're going to, we're going to have him riding around on a motorcycle and saying (laughs) damn and hell, because apparently it's like 1987 version of being tough. Um, And I think what, one of the things that the crisis did lose was all of this stuff. Because the great thing about Superman is if you're if you're a fan of, of fiction with minutia, Superman's the one to get into. Oh yeah. Because holy crud. I mean, let, let's let's forget the Fortress of Solitude for a minute. Let's go into the history of Krypton. Let's go into the secret life of Clark Kent. Let's go into, you know, the adventures of Superman of, of Bruce Superman Wayne and all of these weird things that happen that on their own, you can kind of have, you know, lulls, you know, you know, OMG, this is so funny. But when you put it all together, it is all of these writers coming together and building this rich tapestry of this character where he has all this stuff. Now, I am not a fan of the Superman that sits there and paints alien landscapes <laughs> because my my bread and butter Superman is that when he is the most fantastic thing in his world. Like, you have this very realistic metropolis, but here's this flying man who is fighting these other fantastic beasts, essentially. But 
there's something really cool about that at the same time that, that that's how he kicks back that's how this superman relaxes so i think you can you lose a lot when you strip away everything that made the character special in an effort to update him for a modern audience that if you played this right i mean did you ever read all-star superman uh, you know, I read like the first issue and I, it just didn't work for me and I never went back to it, but I know people have spoken so highly of it uh, later on that I'm like, all right, I need to give that one a second glance. Yeah, it's, it's a modern day version of this treasury okay. because it's, it's Grant Morrison saying it all counts, it all matters. And I'm going to give Superman a big old hug and you get to see all these different, like kind of weird and like his fortress one of the coolest things he did is that his fortress had a key under the mat, but the key was made of white dwarf matter. <laughs> so only he could lift it. That's, that's all right. I love that. I have to admit. Yeah. I mean, it's just like one of those things where you hear that and you're like, Oh, that's really cute. But yeah, I think, I think Superman, especially, uh, but Batman too. And, you know, some of the other characters have managed to kind of retain, their, you know, their, their rogues gallery and their, and, you know, kind of maybe not the, the weirder parts, but I think Superman definitely lost a lot. Uh, and that's somebody who loves the post-crisis era, but it's kind of interesting that one, Byrne kept more Silver Age than he is credited with throwing out. And two, as soon as he was gone, they started bringing back the fortress. Yes. They started right. bringing back all these concepts. So I think that the, the, the lesson there is that Superman is better when you add to his mythology because then you have interesting things to play with with this man that can that can supposedly do everything. I agree. That's, that's why I have you on, Mike, because I need these insights <laughs> into the Superman world. That sounds uh, really good. Speaking of insights and post-crisis stuff, there was a storyline that started in 1998 – and that ended in 1999. And it was actually really cool. It was right after the whole Superman Red, Superman Blue thing ended. And they did this extent, like three or four months where the four Superman titles all took over certain eras of Superman's history. Like Superman the Man of Steel was the Golden Age series. And Adventures of Superman was a Silver Age Superman book. And Action was Bronze Age. And Dan Jurgens on Superman did the Superman of the future. And it was all this villain named Dominus. Ah! <laughs> and what Dominus did, which led into another extended story called Superman Rex, Dominus had Superman seeing visions of an apocalypse. So he started upping his role in the world. Like, he, he did a Superman 4 where he took all the nuclear weapons. And there was a month in early 1999 where he guest starred in, like, 16 books just to show that Superman is everywhere this month because of his own storyline. Huh. And it, it, it all turned out to be by a cosmic villain named Dominus. So I read this and went, oh, so that's where that came from. So everything old is new again. There you go. Very fun. Uh, it's worth noting, as we sort of wrap up here, on this, at least with this look at this book, is that DC, uh, this book, and then the following book, Batman vs. the Hulk, were basically the last two treasuries DC ever did uh, in the classic age of the treasuries, which means they really went out on a high note. Yeah, I was doing, about to say. Doing this and doing the Batman Hulk, which was drawn by JLGLPBHN. And, I mean, yeah. that's, that's a really good way to go out. Conversely, Marvel ended their treasury run with adaptations of 
uh, G.I. Joe, which we covered here on the show, Smurfs, and Annie. So they really kind of... Because, <laughs> you know, kids love musicals about the Depression, especially done in comic book form and at treasury size. So, uh, yeah. Now, I mean, I got to give Marvel credit. They're the ones doing treasuries now. But at least in terms of, you know, what they were offering, at least DC really went out on a couple of winners. Because I do love this comic. I think it's, it's just so much fun. But to be fair, I think, especially in the late 90s, DC did more with the treasury format than anybody. They did. DC so Marvel's, you know, Marvel's got it now, but as much as that uh, Women of Marvel thing sounded like really cool, I'm like, I don't know if it has like the 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 shine of you know Wonder Woman by Alex Ross. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's hey, just a personal thing. Hey, if DC and Marvel want to start competing again to see who can do the best treasuries, I'm all for it. I'm totally all yeah, for no it. Yeah, no doubt. I'll uh, I'll. I'll, I'll, I've got drawer space for that. Absolutely. Yeah, I got a, I got a book. Yeah, I got a bookshelf just waiting to be filled. So before we wrap up, Mike, I have to ask you questions of all my prey. I mean, I'm sorry, not, not all my prey. I ask questions of all my guests uh, in terms of uh, treasuries. Like growing up, uh, like what? I mean, you're, you're younger than me, so you weren't around when the treasuries were being published mm-hmm. at the time. But like, what treasury, first question is, what treasury do you think DC should have done that they didn't do? Other than, of course, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman deserves her own treasury. But is there one that you're kind of amazed they never got around to doing? I would have liked, outside of the All-Star Comics number three reprint, mm-hmm. them to do a treasury, uh, like basically kind of like the treasury version of that digest that you and, and Shag covered over on the digest cast. With the JSA, oh, but okay. that's me. I'm a JSA nerd, so uh, I, you know, because it's like Green Lantern would have been great. Uh, I was about, I almost said Captain Marvel, but then I remembered I have like four of those. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah Captain Marvel got a lot of treasure. Yeah. So, and but I think it would have been kind of cool to have a Women of the DC Universe mm. treasury with a Black Canary story and a Mary Marvel story and a Supergirl story and a Batgirl story and that type of thing. That would have been really cool. I like that idea a lot. They did a DC special like that, but the never as a treasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would have been really cool. So, all right. So does, now does that count as your answer also for the second question, which is completely separated from any financial concerns? Like what would, what would you Michael Bailey like to see have as a treasury? Like what, what, you know, deep inside the nerd recesses of your brain, and it's like, we're going to print one copy, Mike. It's going to be just for you. What would you like to have seen as a treasury edition? The Amazing World of DC by Jerry Ordway. Ooh. I think you're the second person in a row that's talked about Jerry Ordway, because Kyle Benning said, said something similar. So Jerry, or- Jerry Ordway's work, of course, yeah. would look beautiful <laughs> at that size. I mean, that's a great, yeah. it's a great choice. Mm-hmm. All right. Very cool. I understand. But that's to, great. To answer... One uh, the to kind of like the, the the first part though I wasn't really collecting when treasuries were a thing right uh, but I did buy all of the reprints of the Spider-Man versus Superman stuff that came out in '95 uh, leading me to my very first treasury which was the second Superman Spider-Man uh, book. Uh, which I think is actually better than the first one. Oh, oh my God! That's a controvert. Oh, that's a controversial opinion, Mike. Yeah. I actually like that second book a lot. I think I don't. I, I see people bash it all the time. I'm not going to say it's better than the first one. That's crazy talk. But uh, but I, I like 
<laughs> I like the second one quite a bit, just because it's got Hulk, it's got Wonder Woman, but we'll, we'll get to that on the show at some point. Yeah. So that's that's cool. I like all those answers. Again, who would not want to see Jerry Ordway at a giant size? I mean, how could you not want to see that? It's terrific. So so uh, I think that is going to do it for Superman and his incredible Fortress of Solitude. Michael, thank you so much for coming on, man, to talk about it. I really, I was, you know, I was like, I got it, wanted to have Mike on, so I just said, Mike, pick a Superman. You know, and this is the one. And this is a this is a great book. I mean, they did a lot of great Superman treasuries, but this one is really really fun. Well, with the Batman ones you've done, they've been great, but they've also been like kind of trip hammering through different eras of Batman. And I thought, you know, to kind of con- you know to contrast with that with the other big gun of the DC universe, Superman. Why not do an entire story? Uh, in one so that that was kind of my thinking on that but thank you so much this was one it was fun to read and two it was more fun to sit here and talk about it with you awesome awesome yeah thank you i love i said it was super excited to talk super excited to talk about this one so uh before before we uh, wrap up where can people find you on the internet um views from longbox.com which is by uh by weekly at this point i put out about two a month uh, i've got a patreon thing associated with that where you can get more but that's what i kind of released to the public uh fortress of bailey Toot has been a going concern this year i have managed for the past two months to have a post something every day Whoa. uh whether it's a like an article or a thought or man just a cover or something uh just to kind of get that out there uh, because I kind of wanted that thing, you know, I'm I'm kind of ramping up for his 80th birthday next year. So I wanted to, to kind of get that ground running. Uh, associated with that is From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which is also back uh, from its year-long hiatus, where Jeffrey Taylor and I talk about the post-crisis adventures of Superman. Uh, we have just kind of wrapped up the death of Clark Kent. Uh, Shag's favorite story, by the way. And he's cursing at me right now because he hates that story. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I was like, yeah. I was like, I sense sarcasm, but I don't know if I want to go down that road. Yeah, ask him how he feels about conduit sometime, and and then cut out the twenty minutes of him swearing. Do I need uh, to, Do I need to have more angry shag rants in my life, Mike? <laughs> no, you. Uh, uh, I do not. You, uh, I mean, he may have left uh, me for you for, and it's how I'm always going to see it. But you know, you're the prettier girl, so that's okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, also, I've got a couple things coming up in the future. The one thing that I will announce is that uh, Andy Leyland and I are going to be doing a twice-monthly Batman series called The Overlooked Dark Knight, uh, where we are going to be covering, like, early 80s Batman comics, you know, mostly written by Jerry Conway, uh, because no one's talking about it. So we are going to talk about it. And uh, Andy Leyland and I have been wanting to do a show for a while, so uh, you can look forward to that in May. Eventually, there will be no Batman comic era left uncovered by a podcast. There will mm-hmm. be, there will eventually be somebody who's like, you know what, Batman is really the Batman, the space alien Batman, the zebra <laughs> Batman. That's really the dark, my dark night um, detective. There is a guy out there named Chris Johnson that I'm sure would do that if he had the time. Okay, good thing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's everybody loves some version of Batman. So, uh, well, great. Thank you so much for coming on. I had a blast as I knew I would. And you know, you have now appeared on Fire and Water. Film and Water, Power Records, and Treasury Cast. So we only have Pod Dylan left. So <laughs> um, I guess Digest Cast too, or is that too new? Uh, well, that, yeah, I won't. I won't say you haven't been on that show yet, just because we've only done two episodes. But yeah. I'm sure that's. I'm sure that'll that'll come eventually. I don't know. I've I've I've, I've now kind of uh, gone from listening to No Bob Dylan to all of the songs you suggested. There we uh, go. There you go. For, uh, for 
that Legends thing, and I enjoyed all of those, by the way, like quite a bit. Thank uh, you. Okay. Kind of, kind of a nice like, like, like sampler of his work too. I appreciated that. Cool. You get say you come on the show and you can check that box. So it was perfect. <laughs> so thanks everybody for listening. We, of course, uh, we are going to come back with some listener feedback. But in the meantime, enjoy these podcast promos. My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it, from 1938 to the present day. From the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years. And if you'd like to know why, join me for each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio. That's Superman Forever Radio. SupermanForever.com My name is Michael Bailey, and I am still kind of a bad geek. Not a fan of anime, never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books, I've ventured a little further into the worlds of Star Wars and Star Trek, and I've even managed to watch a little Doctor Who. I've also managed to not watch a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. Back in 2007, I started a podcast called Views from the Long Box to deal with this borderline personality disorder. Every week or so, I pick a particular comic or issue or character or whatever to talk about them and then, well, I, I talk about them. It's kind of what a podcast is. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I'm joined by my semi-regular co-hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, or Thomas DJ, and the permanent semi-regular co-host, Andrew Leyland, and sometimes another friend from the podcasting and comic book world stops by to chat. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, where you can find old episodes and show notes and links to my other internet endeavors. You can also find the show on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter under the handle... At Bailey's Podcasts. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comic books or a desperate cry for help. You decide. Every Tuesday or so at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. And we're back with some listener feedback. And first up, we have some new iTunes reviews. Thank you so much. I love iTunes reviews. First up is Kyle Benning, who may be a bit biased about giving the show a good review, considering he was a guest just last week. Anyway, he says, The greatest podcast covering the greatest comics format ever. It's the best podcast available covering the rich history of the oversized treasury comics. Rob Kelly and his guest hosts bring with them a plethora of knowledge, enthusiasm, and personal anecdotes as they explore the oversized treasury comics that are both new and old. It makes for one entertaining comics history lesson. You don't want to miss out on this one. Subscribe now. Five stars. Thank you so much, Kyle, and thank you for doing the show. And we have another great review from Chuck Coletta, our pal, Giant-Sized Fun. The Treasury cast celebrates the giant-sized comic format popularized during the 1970s and 1980s by Marvel and DC Comics. 
host Rob Kelly and a series of guests wax rhapsodically about the comics they loved then and appreciate even more now. Great fun and most informative comics discussion. Thank you, Chuck, and thank you, Kyle. Love the iTunes reviews. It makes me so happy when I pull up the reviews and I see there are new ones. Thank you so, so much. Next, we're going to move on to the comments over on the website, which is, of course, firewaterpodcast.com. First up, from Alan W. Wright. He says, you're right, the Romita cover is truly iconic. Of course, we're referring to Fantastic Four number, uh, Marvel Trilogy number two, Fantastic Four, which was episode 10 of the show. I'm sure that image was used in various FF merchandise from the 1970s and early 1980s. My first exposure to the lead story from FF number six was in a format more appropriate for your digest cast show, the Pocket Books Fantastic Four collection, and he sent us a link to the cover. The second you started talking about that story, my mind flashed to the scene with the Namor, where Namor shouts, go, 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 in space, as we see tightening close-ups of him. I'm glad to see the moment stuck in your minds, too. It's too bad I was exposed to it in a pocket size instead of treasury size. Yeah, I'd say so, but uh, th- that little book looks really cool. I've never read that one, but uh, the cover is beautiful, and I don't know. I, I, I almost want to pick it up just, just for the novelty of seeing it in a completely different uh, way. So I love all those pocket books, and, and yeah, maybe we'll even get to that on Digest Cast sometimes. So thank you very much, Alan. Ryan Daly from our network says, I didn't know there was a Fantastic Four Treasure Edition because I've never seen this in the wild. For sure, if I ever saw it on a shelf, I'd take it home with me. And what a great collection of stories to include. The Doctor Doom Namor team-up from issue number six is one of my favorites, and the whole scheme of launching the Baxter building into space is nine kinds of fun. That should be in a Fantastic Four movie. It's wonderfully comic booky, but also a legitimately draw-dropping set piece that doesn't involve blue energy beams shooting into the sky like every other movie has had. Good point, Ryan. And he says, also, that table of contents is glorious. Thank you for noticing. I'm glad I wasn't the only one. That, that table of contents is, is just killer. It's like a poster by itself. Chris Franklin writes in, he says, haven't had a chance to listen yet since I'm saving it to help me through the doldrums of work tomorrow, but I did spot something in the gallery post. The vignette of Reed on the contest page is the same artwork used on Mego's 1979 World's Greatest Superhero Packaging. And he sent me a link from the Mego Museums, and indeed it is. Perfect. I love finding stuff like that. It's great that they really reuse stuff like that. And no wonder the Mego stuff, of course, was so successful when they used classic art like that on their packaging, at least some of the time. Then he follows up with, uh, great episode, even though I've never owned this treasury, I have to agree, this is the image of the FF I tend to think of. Maybe it's because Ramita's FF, including this image, was all over merchandise in the 70s and 80s. Even that Fantastic Four pouch gum that was out way back when. I have no idea what he's talking about. Sounds interesting. I think there was a t-shirt of this cover image as well, in the same hero's world as that Red Sonia number one t-shirt. I had to get me one of those Red Sonia t-shirts. That's killer stuff. He says, oh, a pleasure to hear Kyle. And I will now think of him podcasting in his own fantastic car, the bathtub version. Thank you, Chris. Of course, he said, I should mention, Chris is from our network as well. He does Supermates and Nightcast along with Ryan. Brian Lint writes in to say, an all-around excellent episode. The FF, Namor, and the Silver Surfer. That's three of my favorite Marvel Heroes teams all in one treasury edition. Why don't I own this? Well, I do own several of these issues in other formats, but I can only imagine what they look like at treasury size. Finally, I have to say that I was a fan of the 90s FF animated series. I particularly enjoyed the episodes where they guest star other heroes from the Marvel Universe, like Surfer, Daredevil, and Black Panther. That format was a great way to introduce viewers to some good, but less well-known, characters. Yeah, a lot of good compliments here for that show. I've never actually seen it, other than the opening credits. Chris Carnes writes in, he says, Fine, fine show. This treasury was one that initially got away from me when I was a kid. I saw it at a Walgreens magazine rack when it came out, and mind you, back then, the magazine was about four times as long, a bit taller, and more imposing than the ones you find in there these days. 
Seeing the number two on the upper corner of the cover led me to think this was the next treasury after Spider-Man volume I already had. My mind was spinning. What volume was going to be next? How often were these treasuries coming out? Will I be able to find them, much less talk one of my parents into buying it for me? Thumbing through it, I was blown away and absorbed as much of it as I could, especially the Impossible Man story. I asked my folks if they would buy it for me, but they said no. I think one of the sticking points was the $1.50 price, which was 50 cents more than the DC treasuries. That may not seem like much, but that was a significant, significant amount for a kid back then. Also, I think the Fantastic Four just didn't have as much recognition to my parents as, say, Superman, Batman, or Spider-Man. Even the older kids on my block, who I thought were more comic savvy than I was, mistakenly called the thing Rockman. Sigh. However, when the next volume came out with Thor, my dad did pick it up for me. Maybe because I was sick and they were leaving me with a setter for an extended period that had something to do with it. <laughs> Guilt really can get a lot done. That's interesting. I like that idea that like your parents didn't buy you the book partly because they didn't recognize the characters. Like That wouldn't have occurred to me. Like Why would parents care? But that, that's a funny idea. They're like, FF? No, I don't know who they are. Superman? Yeah, that's a buy. So thank you so much, Chris, for the comment. Ward Hill Terry writes in to say, another terrific podcast, if you'll excuse the non-obvious adjective. That cover image was widely used in the 70s, but I remember it from Dynamite magazine. I have to say Dynamite with the exclamation mark. This magazine was available only through Scholastic Book Service. Every month or so in middle school, we get a newsprint catalog of the books available. You check off the ones you wanted, hand it in your sheet with the money, and several weeks later, your books arrived at school. They only cost between 50 cents and $2, maybe. I got many Encyclopedia Brown books this way. And then he goes on, This treasury came out before I started collecting, but I would not have bought it anyway. To my 12, 13, 14-year-old eyes, it looked like an old story with old artwork. Fortunately, my old eyes have more mature tastes, and so does my daughter. We spotted it at our favorite LCS a few years ago when she was interested in the FF, so I bought it. It must have been 10 bucks or less, otherwise I wouldn't have. That's awesome. I love that your daughter loves Fantastic Four, and I love that you bought her this treasure. That's super cool. And yeah, I remember those uh, book things too. I don't remember having a catalog. Uh, I remember it being literally like a bookmobile that was like came by or like they maybe it was an mobile, but it was like a separate room that they put the books in, and they had like comic pocket books. That's where I bought my um, pocket edition Fant uh, Incredible Hulk, which was a collection of Tales to Astonish stories, and like I, that was such a beloved book to me, partly because. It was just the Hulk, and I love the Hulk, and it was a continued story, so it was like a big, not big, mini trade paperback. But it was the idea that I was getting it via school, like it was like school officially approved to read a Hulk comic while I was in school. It was very, very exciting, so that's neat. Thank you so much, uh, Ward Hill. Shag, my podcasting life mate, says, really enjoyed this episode. The tight reviews and fun banter always make the show really enjoyable to listen to. I haven't read any of these stories, and I don't have a long history with the FF, but they sure sounded amazing at Treasury Size. Yes, they were. Thanks, Shag. And then finally, Iced D comes in and he says, I'm always happy to hear the Fantastic Four get some love, and this episode certainly delivered. Thanks for including the 1994 FF cartoon theme song. It reminded me of fun time spent with my then four-year-old daughter. She's nine now. Did you guys know that Giorgio Moroder composed the theme for season one? I can't listen to the FF song without thinking of the insane music he put together for Fritz Lang's Metropolis. There's a Film and Water episode for you. Thank you, Iced. Appreciate the reference. No, I didn't know any of that. That's that's a weird credit. Like, Giorgio Marauder doing FF cartoon themes? That's very strange. Anyway, thanks, everybody, for the comments on the website. Of course, it's fireandwaterpodcast.com. I really, really appreciate it. And now we're going to move on to Twitter. And we got likes and retweets from Supermates Pod, Lacey Field 9, Rolled Spine, Siskoid, Randy, SO725, Black Vulcan 69, Comic Social Club, Dr. Ann 70, Firestorm Fan, Comics Corner Pod, Pop Vox Culture, Comics in the Golden Age, which is comics in the GA, Nick Goble, 
Static Keeling, Captain Marvel 75, Comic Reflection, Coffee Comics Blog, Ryan Daly 01. Minimum Viable Me, Assam Harris 15, Gatto Andalus, John D. Knoll, The Art of Caesar, R.M. Ranger, Ian Butcher, New Mutant, Slay Monsterbot, Logan Emock, M.W. Cronenberg, Gen 64 Sen, Nerdmost, The Billy Batson, Tsu Joe, Bold Outlaw, and Movie Mad Matt. So thank you, everybody, for the tweets and the likes on Twitter. I really appreciate it. And the twikes. And the, uh, twikes. I combined a word. And the likes over on the Facebook page, the Fire and Water Podcast Facebook page. Thank you so much. And thanks for all the attention and all the comments. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, finally, before we sign off, uh, between the last episode and this one, we have a new treasury. Marvel has released Guardians of the Galaxy, Marvel Treasury Edition, reprinting three Guardians of the Galaxy stories and a Rocket Raccoon solo story. It's a really great book, much like the other two Marvel treasuries, Spidey and uh, Heroes of Power, the Women of Marvel. It's a really solid collection. It's probably a little more, of course, just being a- around one set of characters, it's a little more th- thematically and age range coherent than the Women of Marvel book, but still, uh, the Women of Marvel one is great. But anyway, Gardens of the Galaxy is a lot of fun. The Rocket Raccoon story in particular by Scotty Young is is really delightful, and I'm really glad that they're putting this out so close to the movie. We mentioned on the episode with Christy Blanche, episode 7, that I think Marvel and DC should be putting out these commemorative treasury editions in front of their movies. Uh, DC's got Wonder Woman and Justice League this year, and Marvel's got Spider-Man and Thor. They should be doing treasuries for all those movies. Put them in Target. I don't even think at a $15 price point, which is a little steep, uh, would even necessarily scare that many parents away because it, it feels like a big gift. It's, these treasuries have that kind of gifty feeling to them, like they're special. And so uh, I hope they take advantage of uh, all the publicity out there for these characters. So I'm, I'm, this is great. Go out and buy it. Support Marvel. Let them know that you want to see more of these treasure editions. It's really, really cool. Guardians of the Galaxy Marvel Treasury Edition. So that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much to Michael Bailey for coming on to talk about Superman and his incredible Fortress of Solitude. Always happy to talk to Mike on podcast, no matter what it is we're talking about, uh, even Millennium, which we'll be getting to at some point. So thanks so much for him. That was a lot of fun. I hope everybody enjoyed the episode. And until next, I was going to say next week. It's not next week. Until the next episode, go big or go home. There are questions to be asked. And it is time for you to do so. Here in this, this fortress of solitude, we shall try to find the answers together.